Australia can quite often have a bad case of cultural amnesia. We're sort of lost in the, the constant present and obsessed by the shallows of the new. But our, our cultural life wasn't born yesterday. It's, it's, it's a thing built on the work of, of generations. Brilliant designers, creatives, artists of the 60s, 70s, 80s, they, they all played a vital role in forming the place we are today. So forget amnesia. Uh, let's reflect. Here, here's a case in point, Clarence Chai. Uh, Clarence is a superstar in the history of fashion and design based in Melbourne. A legacy that endures, but uh, his influence and vision well, has been for a long time somewhat overlooked. Fortunately, uh, Dr Sally Gray, an independent scholar in art, design and urban studies and interdisciplinary creative in the visual arts, She's here to correct the record. Sally, welcome. Thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Who was Clarence Chai? Well, Clarence was a Singapore-born Chinese, born in 1947, um, came to Australia at the age of 16, came to Melbourne to complete his secondary education and um, subsequently studied art and design at RMIT and Paran Tech. And in 1974, he established himself as an independent, what was then called alternative fashion practitioner. Hmm. It was an amazing time in, in that area of, of, of design at that time. There were some really luminary people bouncing around in Melbourne. Yes, well, I guess the whole kind of youth culture, youth quake, as it's sometimes called in fashion history, meant that young people were looking for new forms of bodily expression hmm. and inventing ways to dress and modes of recognition of each other. And that included dressing in um, vintage and in various kinds of ethnic and tribal gear and also in the work of people who set themselves up as small-scale independent uh, designers and makers. So this is what you know, alternative fashion design, I mean, what, what, did the, what did that term mean back then? Yeah, alternative at the time meant not part of the mainstream fashion industry. Um, in terms of the setting up of small independent businesses, be they making or retailing, it meant not part of the mainstream. It meant not part of the um, the magazine trends and not part of having sort of established capital behind you. So in other words, a sort of um, self-made independent vision based on very little money and a whole lot of creative originality. I wonder, with Clarence, how, how, did, how did you first uh, encounter him and his work? Well, it was really part of a project I was doing. I had a um, an ARC postdoctoral fellowship to write about a scene in Sydney uh, which centred around artists and designers, including Jenny Key, Linda Jackson, David McDermott, Peter Tully and all the kind of associates around that sort of art, fashion, design world in Sydney at that time. And I knew there was a backstory that started in Melbourne and that 
Clarence was part of that. So it was essential to research Clarence's role because three of those people in that group that I've just uh, described came from Melbourne and Peter Tully, for example, shared a share house in Carlton with Clarence hmm. and all these people knew each other. So it was part of a kind of queer world-making and part of this way of establishing modes of visual communication through dress whereby people were making and expressing for each other and for like-minded people. So that's how my research into Clarence began. It was as part of researching a Melbourne backstory to a Sydney story. And how would how would you describe his his aesthetic his his look? I mean, how did how did the I guess it's well, the thing which it changes and evolves. But how how did it manifest? Well, first of all, youthful. Secondly, well, he was trained as a graphic designer. He wasn't trained in fashion design at all. He studied art at Paran and studied graphic design at RMIT. And so, as he put it, his way of designing was all flat because he had no experience <laughs> in draping or darting or any of those things that trained fashion designers know about. And so he based a lot of his designs on a kind of Asian aesthetic, uh, both because of this graphic approach and this cutting things flat, for example, like a kimono pattern that is flat, but also because as time went on, he was wanting to express his own Chinese heritage and seeing himself as a Chinese Australian and wanting wanting to be expressive about that. So he used uh, quite a lot of Southeast Asian, in particular, straight Chinese aesthetic in his work, um, quoting shapes from the Sarong Kabaya and um, famously a pattern based on his father's underpants. <laughs> as, as you do. <laughs> yeah, a particular type of Chinese underpants that he remembers right. hanging on the family washing line that was wide without elastic and folded over and is sort of wrapped and folded like a sarong. So he based a lot of his trousers on that on the cut of his father's uh, Chinese underpants. That 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 crossover. I mean, as you say, a, a, a man who studies in 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 design uh, and art, and then it comes to fashion. What what was the turning point? How did his interest in fashion originate? Well, it started with a, a small business. He he began with his then lover Paul Craft. Uh, a business they called Paraphernalia, which was um, where they were dealers in secondhand goods. So there was a lot of really interesting museum quality stuff coming onto the secondhand market in Melbourne in the 1970s, you know, all that amazing stuff from the former wealth of Melbourne. And he and Paul started two shops in the Metropole Arcade in Burke Street since demolished and very cheap rent because the arcade was going to be demolished. So one store had uh, this bric-a-brac 
um, decorative arts, and the other store had vintage clothing. Hmm. So the beginning of his aesthetic and his interest in trading in clothing started there with vintage. You mentioned rent. It's an interesting aspect of that particular historic moment in the in the sixties and the seventies of people living collectively in group houses and and cultural community in those places. This is very much the case for for Clarence. Very much so. And making something from nothing. In in the group house here in Carlton, all the furniture came off the street and he painted everything orange. So the walls of his (laughs) room, the furniture were all orange, the curtains were orange, the sheets and pillowcases were orange. These are all things he told me in interview. So uh, it was all about making do with nothing and making up an aesthetic, like Mm. creating an aesthetic for yourself out of kind of necessity but also just a general kind of youthful inventiveness, I suppose. And how does he jump from that that thing of of, of bric-a-brac and selling vintage clothing to to his own fashion store? Well, he went to London in 73 and he met uh, the famous fashion sort of, I suppose, influencer, we would say now, Vern Lambert, who had a very important role in the the life of Anna Piaggi and Jenny Key and other um, important fashion figures and saw what Vern was doing with vintage fabrics and vintage clothing, transforming them into contemporary fashion. And he thought to himself, well, I could do that. I could, all those fabrics that I've collected for paraphernalia, I could do that. I could make things out of secondhand fabrics and remake vintage dresses, etc., into contemporary fashion. So he came back and he started his own business, separate from Paul Craft, in Crosley Street in Melbourne in 1974, and he called it Chai Clothing and Accessories. <laughs> so it was a combination of the vintage, uh, still trading in some secondhand stuff, making things from vintage fabrics, but also beginning to invent his own line and also selling uh, selling fashion by others like Jenny Bannister. It's a pretty exciting moment. There's, there's, there's a lot of names that we, you mentioned Jenny Bannister, a lot of names that, that are you know, well marked in, in the history of, of this time. But, but, but Clarence is not so much. I wonder why that is. Yeah, that's a good question. And I guess one of the reasons as a historian why I've been interested in positioning him, if you like, as an important part of the story. Um, well, he was an introvert. He was a very quiet you know, I wouldn't say self-effacing, but uh, was not the kind of person to kind of, as people would say, blow his own trumpet, a quiet achiever, that kind of person, and never wanted to be big. He, in interview, told me that he never wanted to grow his business beyond being able to work with a circle of friends and people that he knew. So, he wasn't ambitious except in the sense of his own personal expression and his own um, craft standards. He just didn't have the 
mean, he stayed in business for a long time and survived, mm. but he didn't have the drive to be famous that some people have. Did he? I mean, you mentioned you know the emphasis on craft, and but the thing that you mentioned before of, of the, the the design background having that effect of flatness of working in two D. Did he, did he move beyond that? Is that something which he, he, he developed did. from? He, yeah, he did. He he opened a second store in nineteen seventy eight in Collins Street, um, one hundred five Collins. And there began to make more conventional, more upmarket clothes for the beginning of Melbourne's nightclub era. Uh, so, yeah, he did start to make more conventional styles and became recognised particularly by Vogue magazine, which was very, as he put it, Vogue was very good to me. Um, so he got taken up by Vogue and his work became more mainstream. He was never mainstream in the sense of having factory-scale production. It was still what we'd call now kind of artisanal-level business. So more mainstream in terms of the kinds of clients that he had, people with more money, just a different people who were I wouldn't say corporate exactly, but just closer to mm. mainstream aesthetics. This, of course, was a time when um, a lot of that, this has happened in Sydney as well, but a lot of the, the built environment in the city of Melbourne was being torn down willy-nilly. But the, the buildings that Clarence chose for his shops were sort of a small act of defiance in that trend. Absolutely. In every case, he was always in a building that was about to be demolished um, <laughs> that was beautiful, like 105 Collins was demolished to build that big complex called 101 Collins. So there were always beautiful buildings, some of which were demolished. So he had um, so he had Crosley Street, which is, you know, a kind of slightly gritty situation mm. at that stage. Um, chic but gritty. Then he had Collins and that was a beautiful building that was going to be demolished. Well, then the, first of all, there was the Metropole Arcade. I've talked about that. Then he had a shop simultaneous to Collins Street in the Block Arcade. So again, something very beautiful and heritage value. Then when he moved to Sydney in 83, he had a shop in the Strand Arcade. So in every case, mm. he had an interest in the built environment of, of cities and he and he lived in the city. It's so interesting that, that you know, the alternative creatives of that period would, would be the amongst the first to prize those places. I mean, Strand Arcade is a... Anyone who's been to Stranded in the mid-'80s would... <laughs> Identify with that as sort of a core of, of a certain culture in Sydney, and to see oh. to see those old places and to to see their their aesthetic value is it's, it's an interesting interesting duality. Yeah, that's right. His archives uh, are a bit of a thing, and 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 I mean his archives and your role in in making those publicly accessible. Tell us about that. Well, as you may or may not know, I've, I'm the executor of the David McDermott estate and curator of that legacy. So Clarence knew that, of course, and asked me, well, he was diagnosed with cancer, right, about, I don't know, 
maybe four or five years ago now. And as he got sicker, he asked me, would I be able to advise him about his archives? So we got together, I think it was the summer of about 2021, and we went through what he thought was collectible. And I knew that RMIT Design Archive would be very interested in what he had, which was both a record of his life as a student of RMIT and his work for major Melbourne graphic design firms like Waite and Emery and Brian Sadgrove. So I knew that there was a kind of Melbourne graphic design thread, a history of thread there. And also he had a lot of stuff about his um, process as a fashion designer. So, yeah, so I approached, I approached RMIT design archive and said this was what was there and then they you know started doing the paperwork and you know by the time Clarence died um, in August of last year the paperwork was all done and it was all ready to go and so just after he died his partner Barry and I managed to make sure it all got there so that's how that happened. Wonderful to to treasure that 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 legacy and to give us well, yeah, to, and have, have us talk about Clarence Chai is a wonderful thing. Yeah, and RMIT has been very knowledgeable in how to receive this archive, how to think about it, how to position it, which has been a terrific thing in terms of um, Clarence's legacy. A counter to the, the aforementioned cultural amnesia, Sally. Congratulations yes. on your work and, and thank you. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Dr Sally Gray, uh, Scholar in Art, Design and Urban Studies and Interdisciplinary Creative in the Visual Arts and we're talking there of the, the life and work of Clarence Chai. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.